Hello and welcome to episode 24 of Doc Tell Me More, which is my podcast, where I spend some time taking an in-depth look at documentaries, where we dive a little deeper into the content of the documentary, uh, talking about things that weren't discussed, or go again just beyond the surface level of some topics. And uh, so I want to welcome you so much into this podcast, whether this is your first time or whether you've been with me for all previous 23 episodes, I thank you so much for that either way. And right now we are in the middle of the last dance documentary, the famous you know, documentary about the Chicago Bulls dynasty of the 1990s that came out almost two years ago now in April of, of 2020. And we are on episode seven of the last dance. So if you haven't listened to the previous six I really encourage you to to maybe pause this one and go back and listen to the previous six. Or hey, if you just want to start with this one, then go back through. That is fine with me. And then I also encourage you to look at my other episodes, which I started with, where I spent time going through Ken Burns' baseball documentary. So, But either way, uh, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to... Uh, listen to me talk about The Last Dance. And again, this is episode seven. So sit back, relax, or if you're out doing some yard work um, or doing some chores around the house or just on a drive, just uh, uh, listen, sit back and listen. And I hope you enjoy the content here of episode seven of The Last Dance. So this episode uh, covers the essentially the, the, the year, year and a half after 1993, so obviously that'd be 1994, 1995, and this is when Michael Jordan retired, and he went on his minor league career and tried to become a professional baseball player, and so we're going to kind of talk about how that went, and also talk about what was going on in the NBA when he was gone, uh, both in terms of what happened to the Chicago Bulls, but also you know, who ruled the NBA when he was out on his baseball sabbatical. And I remember when he retired. So I would have been, let's see, eight at this time. They, they won the 90, they three-peated. And, you know, at that time when you're eight and you hear that Michael Jordan is going to go play baseball in the eight-year-old mind, you're like, all right, sure. You know, I'm, you just think he can do anything. Now, I kind of wonder what I would have thought about it had I been, you know, 15, 20, 21, or even, or even now, I'm in my mid-30s right now, what I would have thought about that. But I remember uh, as a kid when that happened, I thought it was cool. And I and I actually did follow his baseball career. Uh, I had his minor league baseball card probably still somewhere in this house. But uh, I, I truly thought that he was going to be able to make it. I mean, he's the greatest basketball player of all time. And when you're an 8-year-old, you kind of believe the the impossible can happen. So, but I think what's interesting is to think back. Uh, that is just kind of absolutely crazy if you just look at it. Where you have Michael Jordan, who at the when he's getting the trophy, uh, and Bob Costas is interviewing him after the three P. Bob Costas calls him the greatest player of all time. So it wasn't you know hyperbole at that time that people were already calling him the greatest of all time. So the greatest basketball player of all time, again, in his prime, you know, he's, he's just won three in a row. 
Uh, he's got a team that looks like could win another four, you know, one or two in the next couple of years. Who then, at the height of his powers, just retires to go play another sport. Uh, and I'm just trying to comprehend what that would look like, you know, right now. I mean, you know, imagine if like some like Mike Trout retired from baseball and decided to, you know, give football a try. Or, you know, imagine if, uh, like Patrick Mahomes quit football to decide to become a baseball player. So it just kind of really boggles your mind that he even did it. He even thought about doing it because that's really just kind of an insane, insane thing and how hard it is to be a professional athlete. And it, it's hard right now, obviously, to be a dual sport, sport athlete in college or high school. And trying to go do that in the, in the professional ranks is just pretty crazy. Now, Jordan said that when he was in the locker room after they won, he said he knew that it was probably his last game. And if you, in the documentary, there's multiple people that quote saying that Michael Jordan had been saying he's going to retire in that last year. And also in a, in a lot of the things I read um, in different books and stuff preparing for this episode, Michael Jordan was saying during that last year that he was going to retire and play baseball. Like, so he had certainly planned that and, and, and that wasn't something that he just decided on a whim. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I think a couple episodes ago during the Jordan rules, um, that book, he he mentioned retiring and going to Europe and playing. And so um, the concept of him retiring after winning like three titles and doing something else, whether it was golfing, going to Europe, or playing baseball, wasn't new. He thought about that, which to me just blows my mind because in my mind, I'm thinking to myself, hey, I won three titles. Can I win four? Can I win five? But, um, but, but Jordan decided to retire. And there's been a, a lot of reasons that went into that re- retirement decision by Michael Jordan. And really, one of the, the biggest ones was the murder of his dad, which the documentary talks about. I, I remember this at the time. And so Jordan's dad um, actually drove to Wilmington um, for the funeral of a friend. And uh, I think when he was coming back, I believe, from that funeral... Um, he went and, and, and pulled over and took a nap on the side of the road, or he might have pulled off somewhere where there was room um, and decided to take a nap. And that was pretty common, I, I think, for people that age. I remember my grandpa actually telling me that that's what they used to do on vacation. Sometimes you're driving, you see a pull over, take a nap. Me, I'm the opposite. If I'm going somewhere, I want to get there as quick as possible. But anyways, he, he uh, took a nap and then... Um, some kids were there, and they murdered him and stole his car. And obviously, that was really hard on Michael because his dad was his, his really a close friend, and you know he was so close that once Michael got to be a really successful basketball player, um, he actually moved to Chicago. And him and his and his wife MJ's mom really tried to go to as many games as possible. So this wasn't a situation where. You know, Jordan's playing in Chicago and his parents are retired in North Carolina and they see each other every now and then. No, no, they were around all the time for Michael. And, and Mike went to him for a lot of advice. Now, there's a lot of people who thought that or kind of conjectured that 
his death was connected to gambling. Because if you remember, and I talked about this last episode, um, this is when he was going through some gambling issues where he had the Atlantic City trip during the Knicks series. And it kind of came out at the time he was a compulsive gambler and owed people money. Of course, he's Michael Jordan. He could afford it. And so some people conjectured that uh, that death was due to gambling. But this was proven incorrect and really unfortunate that Mike had to, had to go through all that and listen to all that. He, it was just kind of a random crime that happened. And people like to think things don't just happen randomly. And that's where they come up with different theories and whatnot. But he, he was just murdered. So that, that was really you know a big reason, the murder of his dad. And he had said that it was his dad's dream um, for him to play baseball. And so there's, I certainly think that he, you know, he was thinking about it at the time, and that probably put him over the top. But you know, he, he had been saying for over a year or so that he was going to retire. And, but besides the murder of his dad, another big reason that he was looking to retire was just the pressure of his life. So again, his lifestyle was not fun. He was confined to hotel rooms. He couldn't move and get out and about. I think one of the big reasons why he liked to golf is he could get on private golf courses and go golf. And, and be away from crowds, but um, he couldn't really do anything. He couldn't go, obviously, out to a restaurant and, and without causing a scene or, or just travel out and about. But also just the, the pressure. So he was considered the greatest of all time by a lot of people this time. And just that constant pressure to always win and, and always be on his game, even though he, he was that type of competitive person that he, he wanted that and even thrived on that. But after a while, the game became less fun. And there were people who noted he was really outwardly less joyful at practice. He was, um, and then there's just that stress of being the champion for three years in a row where everyone is taking their best shot at you. He started to pick up some injuries. I mean, he never really missed any major time outside of that second season when he broke his foot. But, you know, injuries are certainly taking a toll as he's getting into his 30s. Um, He also was starting to get some friction with his teammates um he really wasn't getting along with horse and so there it wasn't really a a unified um locker room and it really wasn't a unified locker room for a while but that began it began to take its toll um after the three-peat he really said he had no more challenges and they talked on the documentary that he really wanted to get a three-peat because uh, Bird didn't three p, Magic didn't three p, Isaiah didn't three p, and so that that was a big for him. Uh, now I, I think what I thought was, was was really interesting was that Magic was warning people that the extra stuff of MJ's fame was wearing him out, um, but then Magic also said that. There was no new stars yet in the league. And if you look at that, by, by 93, Magic's retired, Bird's retired. And certainly there were some good stars, like Shaq came into the league. But there wasn't really any new stars um, coming in to challenge him. So, there, as I said, there were really no challenges for Mike. And I think had there been, like, a, you know, a LeBron James well-established or a Kobe Bryant well-established, that might have wanted to... He might have stayed in the game. Uh, one kind of early warning side that in hindsight looks 
pretty obvious that Jordan was looking at doing something else after 93 was that Dean Smith, who had told Jordan that he would go watch him play a pro game sometime, had actually never seen Michael play in a game. And he finally came during game in 93, and it was kind of seen as a sign, oh, maybe he is going to retire. But he, he, he talked more and more openly about playing baseball. He told Tim Grover, his trainer, to make him a baseball training program uh, after 1993. And he had actually wanted to do both baseball and basketball at North Carolina. But Dean Smith wouldn't allow him to do that. So baseball had always been in the back of his mind. Now, Phil sensed that, you know, when Phil Jackson, as he'd heard Michael kind of talk about this, uh, he sensed that Jordan might play baseball. So it wasn't a a surprise to him when Reinsdorf came and told Phil that MJ wanted to play basketball. And he famously, as the documentary points out, made Michael talk to Phil. Now, MJ was concerned that Phil was going to talk him out of it, but but Phil decided he didn't want to do that. You know, he's not that person to to tell someone what to do, but he also did sense intuitively that if MJ left, he'd want to come back, and maybe he did need that rest, and so Phil didn't talk him out of it. He kind of just picked Michael's brain, and that actually strengthened their relationship. Jordan really ended up respecting Phil for not talking him out of playing baseball. What, what I found interesting was that this came out during the 1993 ALCS between the Blue Jays and the White Sox, which again, Jerry Reinsdorf owns the White Sox. Uh, the White Sox hadn't made the playoffs in, I think, 10 years. And so this was, was kind of a, a big moment for the White Sox. And to just imagine Jerry Reinsdorf there and all these other White Sox fans are excited for the White Sox making the playoffs. And most of them are also by Bulls fans. And, and then that comes out. Just a side note, the Blue Jays would beat the White Sox in that series. Uh, Toronto won the first two at Chicago. Chicago won the next two in Toronto. Then Toronto would win games five and six. And Toronto would famously win the World Series that year, going back-to-back, when uh, Joe Cotter hit a walk-off home run to win the game, which I remember that, too. That was the first World Series I watched. Um, Obviously, as I said, it's really shocking. I can't imagine this ever happening ever again. And uh, obviously it was going to be really tough. I mean, Jordan had a really good body um, for basketball, uh, but his body wasn't good for baseball. He um, he did not have thick legs um, from a basketball standpoint or, or a thick chest and some things that are kind of important for baseball players. Also, being 6'6", well, that doesn't make you necessarily a giant in basketball. That's a good size for a guard. That makes you a giant in baseball, and he had a huge strike zone. And so that was going to be a challenge. And again, he when Jordan's doing this, he was 30 and hadn't played in 13 years. I remember when I turned 30 um, about six years ago, six, seven years ago, I just remember how everything would hurt. You know, I trip over my kids' toys, and my like hamstring would hurt for a week. So I can't imagine trying to play a new sport when you're 30 and going through all that. So he he's he's still technically in his prime, but he's not like in his peak at like 25, six or seven. And he hadn't played baseball in 13 years. What what was interesting though to me is when I was was reading about Jordan is that 
if, if you think about Jordan from the time he came into the NBA and even from the time he came into the, the national consciousness at North Carolina, he had always succeeded. He succeeded his freshman year at North Carolina. Uh, you know, when he won a national championship, really good career in college. Almost from the get-go, had been successful in the NBA. So this guy knows nothing but success. And he's willing to go into a sport like baseball where historically it's just all about failure. Again, if you fail seven times out of ten, you're hitting 300, you know, which is really good. And I, I think you have to really admire MJ for going into a sport he hasn't played for a while that you know you're just going to fail because that's the nature of the support a sport, and you're going to fail publicly. I mean, he knew that people were going to follow and descend upon the minor league camps. And so I think you got to give Jordan a lot of credit for really knowing, hey, I'm probably going to fail. I'm going to fail publicly, but I'm still going to do it. So obviously he goes in place for the White Sox, and that was easy for to happen because Jerry Reinsdorf owned the White Sox, as I mentioned. Um, Reinsdorf actually still paid him his bowl salary when, when he uh, – uh, played baseball, and he said that was really more of a credit to to the fact that he'd been really underpaid as a basketball player, and so that was just making up for it. I think Reinsdorf is also really smart and realized, hey, he's probably going to come back to play baseball, so I might as well keep him happy and, and pay him his basketball salary. He also did make uh, 850 bucks a month playing baseball, um, which is typical for minor leaguers, give or take. Um, now, what I thought was crazy and interesting, I did not know this before I watched the documentary. He, um, they, the reason why they sent him to Double A was because of the media facilities. They didn't have any really good media facilities below Double A, so that was the only reason why he got sent to Double A. I mean, you would think they'd send him to Single A and have him work his way up, but I just, I just think that's a crazy reason for putting putting a, a prospect or a baseball player in Double A, just because that's the media facilities. Now there was a, there's a stories out there that Jordan bought a bus for the Birmingham Barons, which is the team that he played for, the Double A team of the White Sox. But he didn't actually buy um, them a bus. He did charter a bus for them and pay for that. One thing about Jordan, if you if you read about his minor league career, he was lauded for his work ethic. You talk to all of his coaches, um, and a lot of coaches and who would coach in the major leagues, um, they tell you and said that Michael Jordan was the hardest worker they'd ever seen. And so I think that was huge for him to gain respect, is that they respected the fact that he was working as hard as he did. And he would go into the batting cage four or five times a day with coaches working on it. So if there's any takeaway you take from Michael Jordan's double-A hit um, playing experiences, he was lauded for his work ethic. Um, Terry Francona was his manager, which is Crazy awesome because, uh, again, he was the manager for the Boston Red Sox, if you don't know that, when they broke their curse and won in 2004 and 2007 the World Series. And they also took Cleveland uh, to the World Series in 2016 where they lost to my Chicago Cubs. But Terry Francona was his manager. And obviously he's a really good manager. He had won the Southern League Manager of the Year um, in 93. Um, and then he was also the Baseball America Manager of the Year. He had won the, the Southern League title in 1993. And he, uh, he became the third base coach for the Tigers in 96. 
And then he was a Philly manager from 97 to 2000. Uh, he's sub 500, but then he went to Boston and Cleveland. So I think was, Jordan had a really good manager um, in his double-A year. He started off with a 13-game hitting streak, and then he started to struggle with the curveball, which I, I can't imagine trying to hit a curveball. Like, I've always wanted to stand in, in the box against – it doesn't have to be a major league curveball, but it could be just a college curveball. But I would still love to stand in the box – against a major league pitcher just to see what that curveball looks like. Cause I know I, there's probably no way I'm actually going to even nick it. If they threw a hundred curveballs at me, I'm probably not even going to nick one, but I just would like to see what that looks like. But obviously he struggled with the curve. What the documentary doesn't tell you though, is that by July, it's so about mid season. Uh, according to his hitting coach, he really had adjusted to the curve and he started to improve. And his hitting coach said that he made adjustments in the first couple months of the season, that it takes some players two to four years to make. And he was really getting better, a lot of them say. Now, you look at his final stats, he batted 202. Um, you know, he, his on base was 290. Typically, a good on base is like 350, 380, 400. Slugging was 266. You usually want that at least closer to 500. But to me, you have someone who is 30 years old, hadn't played baseball in 13, 14 years, and you're in double A. And double A is actually the cream of the crop in terms of prospects, even though there's, a, there's another level above that. These are legit prospects. And he went out there and batted 202 with 51 RBIs. He had 30 stolen bases. I found that crazy. 30 stolen bases um, and three home runs. To me, that's, that's pretty good for a guy that hadn't played. And again, According to his coaches, he got a lot better in the second half of the season. Um, and then he went to the Arizona Fall League. And this is something that the documentary didn't talk about either. So typically, after the season, the Arizona Fall League, which is like November, December, a lot of the top prospects in baseball get sent there to play in this Fall League to get some a couple more months of seasoning. And so these are like the best prospects in the game. And MJ went there and batted 252 with eight RBIs and five extra base hit, five extra base hits. So he actually improved going into the Arizona Fall League. He had a lot of improvement. Uh, Terry Francona said that he felt like if he had another year or two of bats, he could have made the major leagues. And I believe him. I'm going to trust Terry Francona, the guy, the the, the World Series winning uh, manager, and his opinion. So, and I can see that. And I think it's likely that, you know, probably from a publicity standpoint, the White Sox would have pushed him through. But I, I think he would have made the majors and earned that promotion. Now, would he have been a star? No. He probably would have played at best for a year or two and been kind of a utility guy. That still would have been been pretty cool. Um, the Southern League, the, the league the Birmingham Barons played in, their attendance tripled that year, which makes sense. I would have, if I lived in the area, absolutely bought season tickets to that. Jordan credits minor league baseball uh, with giving him some of that fire back and a reminder of what it's like to not be on top. And so he really was playing baseball for the love of the game. He wasn't successful. The odds against making the, the major leagues was long. And so, and it's a tough sport, obviously, to play. And so to... To be able to go out there and play for three months, or not three months, a whole season, 
you know, you have to really love the game. And he credited with that with giving him some fire back that allowed him to go back into um, the NBA later. Now, a big reason why Jordan went back to basketball was that in 1994, you had the Major League Baseball strike. And that ended the 94 season. And then going into 1995, the strike still had not been settled. And so Major League Baseball tried to play with replacement players. And Michael Jordan refused to cross the picket line. He said he was a union guy in the NBA. He wasn't going to, you know, screw over the Major League Baseball um, Players Union. So he refused to cross the picket line and then eventually went back to basketball. Now, there's also another theory I've read that uh, people have heard that one reason why MJ came back was he watched basketball in that year, year and a half he was gone and he really felt it would be easy for him to come back and win more titles because he didn't see any threats in the league. And he actually kept track of uh, uh, the star players. You know, he actually would call B.J. Armstrong a lot and um, would ask about the young players in the league like Latrell Sprewell, Jason Kidd, Penny Hardaway. And actually, MJ actually one time would actually run in. I say that in air quotes just randomly run into those players in his offseason and work out with them. But um, BJ said that he felt like that he pretty much knew Michael would come back after these conversations. And he did feel like that baseball rejuvenated him. Um, so either way, he, he, he came back to basketball um, after the 1994 baseball season, um, going into the 95 season because of the strike. But... Um, was, this, was, this was then towards the end of the NBA season. Uh, and Jordan and Phil actually talked during that winter. And, and Phil told Mike that he would have to be ready to make a decision because he told him, hey, this strike's probably going to continue. And Phil suggested coming back at, um, with 25 games to go. And Jordan said, I'll come back at 20. And so you could tell that he had been thinking about coming back. And Phil really pushed that on Jordan because he said, hey, you don't have much. If they have this strike and this continues, you're not going to have much time left in your baseball career due to your age. So he ends up coming back with 20 games to go, approximately 20 games to go, started working out, and then he came back. You know, Phil said that uh, Jordan was actually a better teammate and better with kind of the extra perks about being a star, like media um, obligations when he came back than he was before. So baseball kind of did change him. But anyway, so Jordan comes back towards the end of that 1995 season. And we'll talk about how he did at the end of that 95 season in that next episode. But Jordan, again, the greatest basketball player, retired at the height of his powers, played minor league baseball for a year, did pretty decent, quite frankly. And then he came back and played basketball. Just when you say it like that, it seems fake. One thing people talk about, though, is people say that um, Jordan didn't voluntarily retire. It was a secret suspension by David Stern for his gambling. Um, and that, that's kind of a fun conspiracy theory. David Stern didn't, has denied it. So many other people have denied it. And, and really, to me, while it's a cool story, I, I just don't see that happening. Again, there's plenty of documentation that Jordan had been thinking about doing this for years. 
before his gambling issues became public. Uh, I, I can't imagine Jordan just, again, the ultimate competitor, um, if he wanted to continue playing basketball, why he would accept that type of suspension when he could have, again, easily won more titles. And it just doesn't make any sense from the NBA perspective. Why would you push the greatest basketball player, your your number one star, out for a year? And again, when there really wasn't any other stars there, this wouldn't have been like pushing Magic out and still having Larry, or pushing Larry out, you know, and still having Kareem or having Isaiah Thomas, you know. So that just doesn't make any sense to me, and. I think the number one thing is, where's the evidence? You know, David Stern's actually passed away since this documentary came out. It's been almost 30 years. At some point, something would have come out. So I, I don't buy that at all. I truly think he wanted to play baseball. And I think he also played as well as he did because he wanted to. You know, if he was just suspended for a year, wasn't into it, he, I don't think he would have played as well. So anyways, we'll kind of wrap that part about Michael Jordan playing minor league baseball during 1994. And quite frankly, I think you got to give him credit for as well as he did. Again, he was hadn't played baseball for 13, 14 years. He was in his 30s and did all right. And But fortunately for the rest of the baseball basketball world, he came back. All right, so while Jordan was chasing his dream of, of being a two-way star and playing baseball for the Chicago White Sox. The Chicago Bulls still had a season to uh, play, obviously. And they still obviously had a really strong team, but there was a lot of concern over, obviously, how good um, they could be without Michael Jordan. And there's even people that were worrying about what the economy would be like. The hit to the Chicago economy itself would be because Michael Jordan wasn't there. Um, but like I said, Bulls sought a lot of players back from their three-peat. Most notably, had Scottie Pippen uh, at small forward. And, and Scottie came and played maybe his, his best season of his entire career, where he averaged 22 points per game, almost nine rebounds, five and a half assists, three steals, and almost a block, and over 11 win shares. So he had a, he had a really good season. Um, that was his most points per game and rebounds per game in his career. Um, he led the team in points, assists, and steals. Uh, and he was an all-star starter. So Scotty um, had to be the alpha. With MJ gone, he responded with a great season. Um, he had B.J. Armstrong was the point guard. He had ascended to the starting role during the 93 season. And he put up another great season here, almost 15 points and four assists and one steal a game. Seven and a half win shares, and he was an all-star starter with uh, with uh, Scottie Pippen there for the East team. And really from 93, 94, 95, B.J. Armstrong had a nice little three-year run of almost 14 points and three and a half assists. He had between 7.5 and, and, and eight win shares for those three seasons. Um, that... That was it was pretty solid. Now, if you look at some of the, the best point guards, like a John Stockton and Magic Johnson, like Gary Payton, those guys were putting up win shares of at least 12 for their peak years. But some of the other really strong point guards, like Isaiah Thomas, Joe Dumars, Jason Kidd, about 9, 10 win shares a season. So 
BJ Armstrong is not quite at that level, but just below. And really my whole point was BJ Armstrong for a few years was a really good, again, solid, underrated point guard. And so he's right in his prime here this season. You have Horace Grant back again. He averaged 15 points, 11 rebounds, a steal and a block, 10 win shares. He was an all-star. He led the team in blocks and rebounds. Bill Cartwright was back. Five and a half points and four rebounds a game. Uh, some new additions uh, actually was Luke Longley, who I talked about last episode a little bit more, but this was his first year after the trade from the Timberwolves. Averaged about six and a half points and five rebounds. Uh, Steve Kerr, this was his first year after being with the Cavs. Almost nine points, shot 42% from three. One of the best three-pointers in, in league history. And Tony Kukoc, this was his first year coming over from Europe. He famously showed up, and Michael Jordan was giving his retirement press conference. He had no clue that was happening. But he put in 11 points, 4 rebounds, 3.5 assists, and a steal, and, and 3 win shares. Good, solid bench here. Bill Winnington, a backup big man, came over from Europe as well. He had played. Um, I'm actually going to talk about him a little bit more later in this episode, so I don't want to give too much away there now. Played 7 points, three rebounds, and the shooting guard taking Mike's spot, and I, you know, again, it's been so long, I, I forgot about this, it was a guy named Pete Myers, so he played in the NBA from 87 to 91, only started five games those years, then he went and played in Italy for two years, then he came back from Italy and played for the Bulls this season, he actually started 81 games, uh, eight points, three steals, one, three steals, one, three assists and one steal. I mean, like an okay season, three win shares. And then he would play five more years in the NBA, but only 18 starts. So so outside of this season, he played nine seasons and had 23 total starts. And then this year, he started 81 games. So just like an odd, random guy that played for the Bulls this year. And I'm kind of floored. Like, I get that. You're probably kind of taking it back from MJ being gone. I'm kind of floored he couldn't find a better option there. So I think a lot of people expect them to take a, a huge hit without Michael, which makes sense. They started the season 4-7, and seven, but then they went on a 14-1 to one run. And then and to put them at 18-8, and eight, and then by the All-Star break, they are really firing on all cylinders, and they were 34-13, and 13, which was tied for first. They had a rough stretch coming out from the break. They were three and eight, um, but then they went and they kind of did the exact same thing they did at the beginning of the season. They went on a seventeen to three run, and going into their last four games, they're only a half game back. Uh, they had a chance to still of first place. They had a chance to win the number one seed. They ended up losing three of their last four, including a loss to the Knicks. And that loss to the Knicks was huge because. The Bulls ended up getting the number three seed. The Knicks got the two seed. Had that loss been flipped, those two seedings might have flipped. And that was huge when those two teams played in the playoffs later because the Knicks would get home court advantage. The Atlanta Hawks actually had the number one seed that year, but they would bow out pretty early in the playoffs. So going into the playoffs, uh, they played Cleveland again in round one, swept them. Um, but they're pretty close games, all single digits. Game three was in overtime, but it was a sweep. 
And now I want to spend time talking about round two, the Eastern Conference semis, where they play the Knicks for the fourth straight year in the playoffs. And so I'm going to spend a little bit of time kind of in-depth at this series because this was a very important, pivotal series. So Bulls are going for the four-peat, which uh, I believe only the Celtics had done that in the 60s off the top of my head. Obviously, it's tough to do. The Knicks had lost to the Bulls the last three years in the playoffs. And so they still have a great team with like Patrick Ewing, Charles Oakley, John Starks, that same team I talked about last podcast episode. They're finally trying to break through to win a champion, you know, get through the Bulls and win a championship. So people are looking at this series as a potential changing of the guard in the Eastern Conference. And again, Knicks had the home court advantage. This became a really good, really competitive series. So uh, Bulls came out in game one, and they had a 10-point lead at the half, and they were up by nine after three. They actually were up by as many as 15 in the game, and were 10 minutes ago, they're up by 10. So they're really controlling the game. The Knicks would go on a quick 13-3 run to tie the game with six to go. The Knicks would finally take the lead with 48 seconds left to go. First lead since the first quarter. And, and I really noticed watching this game, the Bulls' offense really failed without Jordan. Uh, they were really stagnant. And I think this is when they really missed having that closer, um, that go-to guy, because they just... Um, they just didn't, they, they couldn't find an offensive rhythm. Pippen actually shot one for his last 12. I mean, he had 24 points, but could not close. And the Bulls ended up blowing a big fourth quarter lead. The Knicks won 90-86. Ewing had 18 points and 12 rebounds. So Bulls loses the first one at Madison Square Garden. They go to game two. Bulls again take a lead into the fourth quarter. This time they're up by... Up by three in the, going into the fourth, although they did have an eight-point lead earlier in the second half. Knicks do the exact same thing, and they go on an 8-0 run to take the lead and just pretty much control that from there on out, win by five. Pippen scores 22 but fouls out. Grant and Armstrong have 23. Ewing at 26-9. and nine. So Knicks go up 2-0, and this is huge because the Bulls end up blowing fourth-quarter leads in the first two games. And I'm sorry, I hate to do this to Scottie Pippen if you're listening to this podcast, which I doubt you are, but if you are, that's cool. Bulls miss Michael Jordan. I mean, I feel like watching these two games, if you have MJ, uh, I think you win at least one of those, if not both those games. But instead, they go down 0-2. And that takes us to game three, which is the, the, the classic game that people think about in this series. And they, and they profiled this in the documentary. This is the game, the, the, the Scotty Pippen, Tony Kukoc game. Uh, and But what they don't talk about in this game, though, there's actually a huge fight, a huge brawl in this game. And it spilled over into the first row, like two rows in front of Commissioner David Stern. Uh, but anyways, the Bulls had a 19 point lead after three quarters, 19. And then they're up by 12 with 514 to go. Okay. Have a huge lead, but guess what? They start to blow a lead again. They're up by six 
with a minute 16 to go. This is kind of where Patrick Ewing takes over. He hits a bucket to cut the lead to four. Then Pippen misses a shot. Bulls get the rebound, but then they lose it. Ewing comes right back, hits another two. So the Knicks are down uh, by two points with 29 seconds left. Uh, Scotty Pippen gets the ball again, misses a shot, turns the ball over on a shot clock violation. Um, and so that's really key and something they don't talk about in the documentary. Scotty Pippen had two shots to extend the Bulls lead and maybe put the game away and he missed them and missed them pretty poorly too. Um, so he really screwed those two possessions up. Ewing goes down and he hits another bucket to tie it up at 102. Okay. So this sets up the, the, the Tony Kukoc stage where there's a few seconds left. I can't remember if it's two or three, honestly. And uh, Phil Jackson draws up a play for Tony Kukoc. Now this pisses Scotty off and he says, I'm not going in. And famously, he stays on the bench. And, and, uh, which is just crazy when you think about it because he didn't like that the play was drawn up for Tony Kukoc because he's the man on this team. Well, here's what I would say to that. Tony Kukoc had three game-winning shots in that season, last-second shots. So th this And this was a play that the Bulls had run before and had worked. So it made sense that Phil drew that play up. But also, Scottie Pippen screwed up the last two possessions prior to that. He had his two opportunities to give the Bulls essentially the win by extending the lead, and he missed it. So after watching that, Phil was right to give Tony the shot. And not only that, Tony makes it. <laughs> Tony makes the shot, wins the game. Bulls, you know, cut the series lead to 2-1, to one, uh, and the Bulls have life. But famously, the locker room was just, as the title of the documentary, it was just a disaster because everybody was pissed at Scotty. And I think it's hilarious to this day that Scotty says he doesn't regret it, which, which is just kind of unbelievable. I lost a little bit of respect there for him at the time when he said that. So Ewing had a great game, 34 points, 9 rebounds. Pippen at 25-7. and seven. Um, So the Bulls win a game, and then they go to game four, and... Take control pretty early, up by 12 after 1, 14 after 3. Uh, win pretty handily by uh, double digits. And so they tie the series. So they blew the first two games. Really impressive. They don't hang their heads. They come right back and win the next two. Uh, and that takes us to Game 5. And this is the game that um, should have been talked about more in the Last Dance documentary. Because this is the game a lot of the Bulls players point to were stolen from them. So it's a really close game throughout. Bulls are up by one, and they get a rebound off and missed free throw with 28 seconds left. Uh, Pippen passes to Armstrong, who misses a three. He makes that three, the Bulls probably win the game. Knicks rebound it with seven seconds left. And so that leads to a play where Hubert Davis um, is given the ball with a couple seconds left, and he shoots a three that he misses as time expires. And that would have ended the game and given the Bulls a 3-2 lead. But an official called a foul, and Davis hits two free throws to win the game for the Knicks. So the Knicks win by one point. And it's a very controversial foul. And I honestly watched the angle on this multiple times, 
it is really tough to tell if there's a foul. Now, Hubie Davis definitely flops a little. You know, you kind of see it a lot now in the NBA where a, a three-point shooter kind of shoots a shot and kind of kicks his legs out and falls back to try to draw a foul. And they, act, they call that now. But they didn't really call that from what I was reading back then. And I, Steve Curry yelled at the ref and said that he had released the ball and was, like, down when the, when the contact was made, which Kerr claimed you didn't call that back then. I watch it now, and I there might be some contact. And you can go to YouTube and, and Google it yourself. But the real question is, is that enough to have a foul call to determine a game? And so um, Bulls end up losing this game. There actually was, I guess, like a second left, and the Bulls try to run a play, and the Knicks steal it. But the Knicks win 3-2. to two. To me, this is the biggest what-if of the series. I really think if the Bulls win this game, probably likely they go back and win a game six at home. You know, you don't know that. But that's probably what happens. I mean, they went to game six anyways, and, and the Bulls won by 14 and won pretty easily in game six anyways. And it went to game seven. But very controversial way for the Bulls to, to, to lose game five. So... It's 3-2, and then it's tied at 3 after the Bulls win in Game 6. And we go to Game 7. Uh, it's close to the first three. Knicks up by 1 at half and 4 at 3. The Bulls cut it down to 2. Then the Knicks put it right back to 5. And pretty much the rest of the game, for the most part, uh, Knicks are in control up 3-5. to five. Kind of the dagger happens with 6 minutes to go where Patrick Ewing actually banks a 3 in. And that ends up putting the Knicks up 10. And the, and the Knicks win by 10. Um, and so the Bulls lose this series in seven. I think without a doubt, the Bulls win this series with Michael Jordan. Uh, I mean, I mean, they blew the first two games. They should have won both those games. Blew the lead. And then game five is controversially close. I think with MJ, you win at least one of those games you you lost. So, but the Knicks finally win. They get over the hump and they would actually go to the NBA Finals, which we'll talk about here in a minute. Now, I was having a conversation with a colleague of mine not that long ago who he's, he's younger than me and he's a LeBron fan. Been a LeBron fan since the beginning. And he said to me, he said, the biggest argument you could make for LeBron James being better than Michael Jordan is that whenever LeBron left a team, whether it was Cleveland the first time or the second time, or whether it was Miami, those teams tanked without him. They did. And then they immediately became title contenders with him. And, you know, and he'd made, what, eight or nine straight East Finals or Eastern Conference Finals, LeBron's teams did. I think that's a decent argument. I, 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 don't, I don't think that's a bad argument. My argument would be, though, that without Michael Jordan, the Bulls lost and couldn't get out of the Eastern Conference semifinals. When they got him back for a full season, they won three straight. Great players elevate their teams. LeBron does that, and so does MJ. And I think if MJ's on this team and goes any doubt, they win this series. And I think they go to the NBA Finals. Whether they win, that's a different story. Houston was really good. But... Um, had the Bulls won, 
they would have played the Pacers in the fine Eastern Conference Finals, and they'd actually beaten them four to five times. Um, I, I I definitely think with MJ they win this series. I do think if they ended up pulling out Game Five, they probably win that series and go to the finals. Probably lose the finals to the, the Rockets, who they split. But um, but no, you had three games that they lost pretty tightly, and um. And I think MJ helps them pull it out too. So, anyways, 1993-94 Bulls, really good team. A 50, 50 plus win teams off the top of my head. I should have it written down. I think it's 55 wins that they had without Michael, but they couldn't get to the mountaintop without him. And that's because there's some other team that stepped in during Michael Jordan's void and filled that championship spot. All right, so the Chicago Bulls weren't going to four Pete without Michael Jordan. And so the question was, who was going to come and, t- and fill the void of the Chicago Bulls? And if you keep going back, remember in the late 80s, you had the Lakers that went back-to-back. Then you had the Pistons go back-to-back. And then you had the Bulls three-peat. So um, at, at this point in time, the Lakers and Pistons were both not that great and were rebuilding. Um, so the question was, who was going to take that reins? And... And the team that rose up to become that next team was the Houston Rockets. And so I I really want to spend a, a lot of time talking about the Houston Rockets because they're not mentioned at all in the documentary. And I definitely think they get the short end of the stick because a lot of people dismiss them because they ended up winning titles when Michael Jordan was gone. And they say, well, if Jordan was here, they wouldn't have won. And, and I don't know if that's necessarily fair or not. So I do want to spend some time here talking about those Houston Rocket teams and give them their due. So night since uh, 1984, the Rockets had the number one pick. And we talked about this in the first episode. And they drafted Hakeem Olajuwon. And they had made the playoffs um, in, in eight out of the first nine years that Elijah wanted to play. So they, they'd been uh, pretty successful in terms of making the playoffs. Now, they had just made it past the first round only three times. They made the NBA Finals surprisingly in his second year in 1986. And they lost to um, the great Boston Celtics teams in six games. And they were... They were led by Ralph Sampson and Akeem Olajuwon. So Ralph Sampson um, had been with the Rockets before Olajuwon got there. He had been the number one pick the year before. And they really had this this twin towers um, where Akeem and Ralph Sampson playing power forward and center. And Ralph Sampson had played four years at Virginia and was considered one of the best college big band prospects in a long time. And so when Houston was able to luck into drafting Sampson and Elijahwan first back-to-back years, a lot of people really thought all of a sudden that the Rockets were going to be a dynasty. Because if you think again back to that time, um, it was about having a big man. And the Rockets had two. And then when they made the NBA Finals in their second year, a lot of people thought, okay, this is going to be the new team. Well, unfortunately for the Rockets, Ralph Sampson just could never stay healthy. Akeem really developed into a great player, but Sampson got hurt and was eventually traded. And so while the Rockets were able to continue to remain a playoff team, 
they just couldn't get over that hump. In the previous year, in 1993, they lost in the Western Conference semis in seven games. They were the two seed. Uh, they lost to the three seed Supersonics. Uh, and then they, they lost game seven by three in overtime. And so a good run for them. But at this point in time, Akeem was one of the best players in basketball that hadn't won an NBA title. And so the real question is, okay, with Michael Jordan gone, that wide open, can they finally make a run? Or can they finally get out of the West, which had some great teams in it? You, they had Phoenix, who had won the West in 93. Obviously, Seattle was really good. And you saw the Utah Jazz. So, um, in 1994, um, they started the season crazy hot. They started 15-0. and and 22-1, and one, which is, that's just insane. And um, obviously, you're going to set yourself up for success with that type of start. Now, you would think that type of start would uh, put you in, in the front seat for the number one seed. Well, the, the Seattle Supersonics started out 20-2. and two, and then they finished 17 and 2 in in their last 19 games and so Houston finished with a very good record of 58 and 24 but Seattle had an even better season they went 63 and 19 so Houston actually got the number 2 seed um Houston had a had a losing record to just the the Nuggets and the Spurs both um over 500 teams the Rockets split um their matchups with the SuperSonics 2 to 2 and just for, uh, and also with the Bulls, just even though they wouldn't play the Bulls in the playoffs, I just I just thought I'd share that. Now, b- before we get uh, to the playoffs, let's take a look at their roster. So, uh, their point guard was Kenny Smith, who uh, was a 10-year veteran. He averaged 11.5 points and four assists this season, had six win shares. He actually played for the Kings under Bill Russell. Bill Russell did coach the Kings for a little bit, not that well, um, and he played for the Kings and the Hawks, and he he was traded to Houston before the 89 season um, and became the starter. Really good three-point shooter, shot 40% from three, um, and he actually played until 97, so a pretty good, solid point guard was Kenny Smith. Their shooting guard was Vernon Maxwell, and this season he had 14 points per game, five assists and two steals, about three and a half win shares. He's another guy that Houston traded for. He'd played for Denver and Seattle. He actually held the NBA record for most three points made in, in, in a season from 91 to 93. Uh, he would be considered like the number two guy in, in Houston. Something that's really interesting into his future, he had actually quit the team the next year in the 1995 playoffs after they lost to Utah. And he'd end up losing playing time to Clyde Drexler, which we'll talk about later on. Ended up being a journeyman for the rest of his career. But he, he was good in 94 and with the team. But in 95, he'd actually quit the team midway through the through the year, towards the end of the year. Small forward is Robert Ory. Averaged 10 points a game, 5 rebounds, 3 assists, 6 win shares. Um, big Shot Rob, as they call him. Or, or Big Shot Rob or Big Shot Bob. Uh, he's known for winning seven titles with three teams, uh, which is the most titles by anybody who wasn't on the, the Celtics with Bill Russell in the in the 60s. But he'd win two titles with the Rockets here. 
He'd be on the Laker three-peat in the early 2000s, and he'd win two more to Spurs in 05 and 07. So there's only three other players that have won titles with three different teams. Um, he was 11th pick in the 92 draft and played with Houston from 92 to 96. He set the finals record with seven steals in a game. He ended up being, after his time with Houston, traded to a couple teams. He traded was traded to Phoenix, then he traded to the Lakers. And as, as I talked about, he played with, with the Spurs, and he retired after the 2008 season. But he's called Big Shot Bob because he made some big shots in the playoffs. And he had a game-winning shot in the 95 Western Conference Finals uh, in both Game 1 in game one, and then he had a game-winning shot in game three of the 95 finals. He had a game-winning shot in the 2001 finals for the Lakers. Um, another buzzer beater in the Western finals in 02. And he had a game-winning shot in game five, the 2005 finals. So he had game-winning, multiple game-winning shots for multiple teams in the NCAA finals. So you talk about a clutch guy, Robert Ory was that. He holds the NBA Finals record for most three-pointers all time, and he's the first player to get 100 steals, 100 blocks, and 100 threes in a season. So good, solid, all-around player in Robert Ory. Power forward was Otis Thorpe, 14 points a game, 11 rebounds, 10 win shares. He was the all-star in 92. Another guy that actually played for the Kings before he was traded to Houston in 89. He played in 542 consecutive games between 86 and 92. And he holds Houston's all-time record for highest field goal percentage. He ended up being traded in the middle of the 1995 season. Um, and just kind of something interesting about Otis Thorpe. Before the 97 season, he was on the Pistons, and he was traded to the Vancouver Grizzlies for the number one pick. and Or for their number one pick. And at that time, you could kind of trade that and say, hey, that you don't have to give that pick in this case, to uh, so Vancouver w- w- traded for Otis Thorpe, and they gave their number one pick to Detroit. But essentially, Vancouver could have put that off for like six years. And so finally, um, when Vancouver had to give the pick to Detroit, they had to give it to them in, in the 2003 draft, which ended up becoming the number two pick. And that was the LeBron James draft where... Um, you also had Carmel Anthony, Chris Bosh, or D. Wade. And so he got in, So, but Vancouver couldn't keep that pick, and the Pistons got that pick. And they actually messed the pick up and picked Darko Milicek. But anyways, just a random piece of history there. Otis Thorpe, good solid player, power forward for the Rockets. And in the center, Kim Olajuwon had a phenomenal season, 27 points per game, 12 rebounds, almost four blocks and four assists, and a, a steal and a half, 14 win shares. And Hakeem's considered one of the greatest player, centers of all time. And I just want to spend, because he was so good, a little bit of time here talking about his bio. So he was born in Nigeria. He was actually a soccer player, and he did not play basketball until he was 15. But he really credits uh, him playing soccer with his footwork, developing that so he could become a really good post player. He ended up going to the University of Houston, and he was not highly recruited. He was just offered a chance to try out for the team. They actually made him take a taxi from the airport to the school. He redshirted initially as a freshman, and he was the sixth man as a freshman. 
And I ended up working with Moses Malone in the offseason. I talked about Moses last episode. Moses at the time played for the Houston Rockets. And so Akeem in college at the University of Houston worked with one of the best centers of all time in Moses Malone. He got rapidly got better. He took Houston to the uh, back-to-back national championship games where they lost to NC State and then Patrick Ewing in Georgetown. But he's infamously part of the 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 Houston Cougars teams that are called Phi Slamma Jamma because uh, a lot of high-flying dunkers on that team, including Clyde Drexler. Now, he went pro a year early because, again, at that time, there was not a draft lottery. The top two teams with the worst record would, would then flip for the number one pick. And Houston was one of those two teams, so he wanted to stay in Houston, and Houston had a 50% chance to get Hakeem, so he liked those odds and went pro, and, and Houston won the number one pick and then drafted him. As I mentioned, they had some immediate success where they lost in the 86 finals um, in his second year. In his rookie year, he was the runner-up to Michael Jordan for rookie of the year. And he was really consistent um, through his mid-30s. He's a guy that put up 23-24 points, 11-13 to 13 rebounds, 3-4 to four blocks. Just very consistently good. He was the first player to average 14-plus rebounds and 4.5 blocks. And he was the third player to lead the league in blocks and rebounds. He's also one of only four players to record a quadruple double in the history of the game. And he's the only one to do it twice. Um, And I don't think anybody's done it. No one's done it since the 90s. So Akeem did it twice in the 90s. David Robinson did it once. And I can't remember which one did it last. If I had to guess, I think it was David Robinson. But no one's done it since then, since the 90s. Now, d- despite how good he was, he had a, some issues with the Houston Rockets. Um, for, again, from 87 to 92, they were 1-5 in, in the playoffs. He felt that Houston wasn't committed to winning. They are just more concerned about making money. Now, he was consistently unhappy with his contract. He was unhappy with his rookie contract. Um, where he really felt like he was lowballed because the Rockets knew he wanted to play for them. And so they lowballed him. His second contract as well was, was pretty low. He signed an extension that was $3 million a year. But then Patrick Ewing got a contract that was $9 million a year. And he felt like he was just as good, if not better, than Ewing. And so he deserved a better contract. Eventually it all came to a head where Hakeem didn't play five games during a season, uh, during I think in the middle of the 92 season. And Houston accused him of faking an injury so he didn't have to play to kind of stick it at the Rockets. And Houston actually lost all five of those games and missed the playoffs. Houston said they weren't going to pay him. They told the players that, or they told the fans they'd have to triple ticket prices if they paid him. And Akeem actually requested a trade. And he and the reporters actually expected him to be traded. However, they got a new coach, Rudy Tomjanovich, in 1993 went better. And they actually made the conference semis. And he ended up, they ended up taking a trip as a team uh, to Asia, I think, I think Japan, to do like an exhibition game. It's a 14-hour plane ride. He ended up sitting next to the owner on the plane. And when they got off that plane ride, their relationship was better. 
He ended up getting a new contract. And so that team was considered the Rockets again on the rise. So as with everything, you pay someone a lot of money and they're immediately happy. He really dominated. His peak years were 94-95, I would argue. He averaged 27.5 points per game those two seasons, over 11 rebounds, almost four assists, almost two steals and three and a half blocks. He's a 94 MVP. He's the only player to win MVP, finals MVP, a championship, and defensive player of the year in the same season. At his peak, too, he played during an era of great centers. You talk about Patrick Ewing, David Robinson, Shaquille O'Neal, Dikembe Mutombo. He dominated in an era where there were a lot of great big men. He actually ended up getting U.S. citizenship, and he played in the 96 Olympics for the U.S. Dream Team number 2. And just kind of going forward here, he played in Houston through 2001. He could get to the conference finals again, but couldn't win. They actually tried to put a super team together with Charles Barkley and Scottie Pippen. In 99, it didn't work. He ended up being traded to Toronto and played one year with them. And he retired after 2002. If you look at his career stats, 22 points a game, 11 rebounds, 2.5 assists, 163 win shares. That's just crazy. He's a 12-time All-Star, 94 MVP, 2-time Defensive Player of the Year, 2-time Finals MVP, 3-time Block Champ, 2-time Rebounding Champ, 9-time All-Defensive Player Hall of Famer. He's number 1 all-time in blocks, number 10 in steals, and number 15 in rebounds. And... Michael Jordan gave an interview one time and said that he would take Elijah Wan over any other center because he was so versatile. He could score, he could rebound, and get the steals and blocks. And that's and that's why Jordan liked him, because he was so versatile. And that's what made Akeem a great player. He's the only player to have more than 200 blocks and 200 steals in the same season. And he's also the only player with 2,000 blocks and steals. He's the only center to rank in the top 10 all-time in steals. Just a great offensive and defensive rebounder. Had a really great shooting touch offensively with his great footwork. He had a move called the Dream Shake because he was named Hakeem the Dream was his nickname. Um, he and, and a lot of it just goes to he had great footwork being a former soccer player. So um, one of the greatest centers of all time. Um, just a phenomenal player. And he was really the backbone of this Houston Rocket team. A couple of their key reserves for the Rockets were Sam Cassell, who's a guard, Mario Ellie as well. Some good guys off the bench. So the Rockets go into the playoffs in 94 as the number one seed. Excuse me, number two seed. I apologize. Round one, uh, they played Portland. Uh, and they beat them 3-1. to one. Team averaged 34 points, 11 rebounds, 5 assists, and 4 blocks. My goodness, that's just ridiculous. In the Western Semis, they beat the number three seed Phoenix Suns in seven games. Keem averaged 29 and 14. Now, they had a little bit of good luck there in the Western Conference Finals. So Seattle, as I mentioned, was the number one seed, but they got upset 3-2 to two in the first round by Denver. They became the first number one seed to lose in the first round. And, and again, this was a best of five at the time. Denver actually was down... Um, Two games and nothing. They had to win their last three games to win that. So they beat. They ended up beating the Sonics. And then they went and played the Jazz in the Western Conference semis. They went down 
to the Jazz, came back and forced a game seven, but still lost. So the the Rockets end up playing the number five seed Jazz, and they and they beat them pretty handily in five. And Akeem has twenty eight points, ten rebounds, and five blocks. These are just stupid numbers. I'm just telling you, by the way, this shouldn't happen. So in the NBA Finals, they played the New York Knicks. Knicks fresh off of beating the Bulls in the Western Conference semis. They beat the Pacers in the Eastern Conference Finals. The Knicks finally win the East without MJ. And as I talked about, you got Patrick Ewing, you got Charles Oakley, Charles Smith, John Starks, Hubie Davis was on this team. Um, their point guard, Doc Rivers, was out for the year with an injury. Um, just a really strong team. And they actually, again, a good defensive team. 23 times in the playoffs that season, the Knicks held teams under 95 points. So really strong defensive team. Uh, Knicks hadn't made the NBA Finals since 1973 when they won. And really this was considered, again, a great matchup with centers. Ewing, Elijah and again, Ewing had beaten Elijah in college in the NCAA Finals. Pat Riley was trying to win a championship with his second team after he'd won four with the Lakers. And the finals were going on during the same time as the Stanley Cup finals. And the New York Rangers would actually win the Stanley Cup. And they actually shared the Madison Square Garden with the Knicks. So the Knicks were trying to uh, make it so that New York would own the Stanley Cup and the NBA championship in the same year. So let's go into this series. Um, Very intriguing, interesting series for a number of reasons. But the team split the first four games. Houston had home court, and it went Houston, New York, Houston, New York. Um, All single-digit margins. Um, a, A big key for the Knicks was John Starks was having a great series. He had 19 plus points in game two, three, and four. Houston was pretty balanced. But really, this finals comes down to the last three games. So again, you got game five here. And the series is tied at two games apiece. A lot of storylines outside of basketball going on, though. The first one is that the Rangers are having their championship parade that day. So that's going on. But this is the day of the infamous O.J. Simpson car chase bronco chase and so i'm sure a lot of you know about the oj simpson trial especially there's that documentary a few years ago of oj simpson that espn put on that was really good but again if you don't know oj simpson's wife and i think maybe ex-wife i can't remember the ex-wife or wife and her i think boyfriend anyways that they were both murdered and O.J. became the prime suspect. And eventually a warrant was issued for his arrest. He was supposed to turn himself in. And he didn't. And instead he had a friend of his and a former teammate of his take him, <laughs> got in a car and they were, they were driving somewhere. And the police noticed them, and they tried to pull them over. And Al AC Al K 
Cowens, 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 I think they call him AC, was uh, OJ's friend, told the police that OJ had a gun to his head and was going to kill himself. And so they went on this low-speed <laughs> car chase on the highway that went for hours. And it was picked up by the TVs, the news outlets. They just followed it. You know, you had helicopters over the place, and they were just following OJ down the freeway. And people didn't know what was going to happen. And to put this in perspective, OJ was one of the most popular athletes at the time. He's a great player. He's a Hall of Fame football player, the first person to rush for 2,000 yards in a season. And was a great, I don't know, great, he was an actor, he was in a lot of commercials, very popular. So just imagine that in current times, like this would be like Tom Brady or Peyton Manning, great players, popular players, um, murdering their wives and going on a car chase. This was an absolutely big deal. And so what happened during game five, as this is going on, they actually ended up split-screening the game where you would have the game on half the, 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 the TV and the car chase on the others. And I remember this. I, I actually watched this. I was nine at the time, and I watched this. I this seared in my head as you had the NBA Finals going on, and you have O.J. Simpson's car chase going on. And there were times as well that actually cut away from the NBA Finals to just cover the car chase. I mean, imagine that. NBA Finals. And this is at the time when not every single game was on TV. This is this is big. They're cutting away from an actual championship game, a close game, in a tied NBA Finals series to follow this. 95 million people watched the car chase during the NBA Finals. That was more people than had watched the Super Bowl. And many people thought he was actually going to kill himself. And his old college coach, John McKay, actually was able to get a hold of him and called him, and he was able to convince him not to do that. And what happened was O.J. Simpson ended up driving back to his estate, and he surrendered and was taken into custody. And they actually found, and this was not released after the trial, actually, they found $8,000 in cash, a change of clothes, a gun, a passport, family pics, and a disguise kit. I mean, to me, that screams guilty, you know. But um, he was eventually uh, found not guilty in the in the criminal trial. Was found guilty in the civil trial. And I think still owes money to the families of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman, the two people that were murdered. And he claims he didn't do it. I think it's likely he did it, but that's a different story. And again, like I said, the, the chase really distracted people from the game, including Bob Costas, who was the anchor of the NBA's coverage. And they actually had to bring in Tom Brokaw during the game to, to, to cover this story. So this is all going on during the game. You know, and obviously the Knicks and, and the Rockets don't really know what's going on. But that car chase is going on during this game. And that becomes the lead story instead of this really great NBA Finals game. And the Knicks are actually up by 10 in the third quarter. And then they're up by um, even six with four minutes to go. And they cut away to the Bronco chase. When they, they came back with seven minutes to go. So they missed 
like nine minutes of game time. And the Knicks lead went down to one. And then the, the Rockets would go on an 18-5 run. But then the Knicks would counter and outscore the Rockets by six the rest of the way. And John Starks was really the, the key. He had a great game. And the Knicks would end up winning that game by seven points and take a 3-2 to two series lead. And so they just needed to win one more game to, uh, to win their first NBA title in 20-some years. But then it would go back to Houston for game six and seven. So just, just a crazy surreal experience. I just remember watching that game and watching the O.J. Simpson thing. And I just, you know, I didn't at nine really quite know who O.J. Simpson was. But I just remember being watching TV in the house I grew up in. I remember just from my dad watching too pretty intently with what was going on and my dad didn't really do that you know it was one of those things where he couldn't pull himself from the tv either and that that's very unlike my dad even to this day and so I kind of knew at the moment that it was pretty uh pretty much a big deal and instead of this day I think it's one of the more crazy moments in, in my life in terms of sports and media and whatnot so anyways the, the Knicks are one game away from winning the title Goes to Game Six, and Game Six. There's a, there's a really a lot of criticism of how Pat Riley ran his rotations. He typically never played more than eight men at a time. He, he had a short bench. Even when players went into shooting slumps, he wouldn't take them out and put in for bench guys. And no one really questioned him at the time because he was the genius that had taken the Lakers to four championships. And had saved the Knicks, quote unquote. Um, but th- there's a lot of criticism that um, he didn't adjust to this series when things were going well for Houston, as opposed to like a coach like Phil Jackson or Rudy Tomjanovich would. So the Rockets had Hakeem switching on defense during this game, and and Hakeem a lot of times would end up on the perimeter. But the Knicks wouldn't adjust to take advantage of their kind of their their matchups down low with Hakeem being pulled out, and they just wouldn't adjust to that advantage they had down low with like Charles Oakley and whatnot, and that ended up hurting them. So um, it was a close game; it was tied at one. The Rockets got up by ten at half, but the, the Knicks would actually cut it. Um, John Starks would bring the Knicks back by scoring sixteen points in the fourth quarter, with five seconds left to go in the game. The Knicks were down by two. Uh, the Knicks got to John Starks to win the game in the championship if he could hit a three. But then Akeem ended up blocking the shot at the buzzer. And Houston won by two. And so it went to um, a game seven. Winner take all. So um, what what is kind of interesting is going to game seven here, uh, Houston had the home court advantage, but they only had it because they had it by one game over the Knicks. And had the Knicks won one more game in the regular season, they would have had home court advantage. So Houston um, ends up taking kind of small leads throughout the game. They're up by one after one, two after two, and three after three. And so it's a close game, but really the story of the game is that John Starks, who had played incredibly well in this series, and he had essentially won games four and five for the Knicks by scoring double digits in the fourth quarters of both of those games. He went ice cold, and he went two for 18 in this game and couldn't 
you know, couldn't hit water if you fell out of a boat. Um, but he went ice cold, and the Knicks couldn't make shots when they needed it, and the Rockets ended up winning by six. They won by six and won their first NBA championship and heartbreak for the Knicks, who then still haven't won an NBA championship since then. Akeem averaged 27 points, 9 rebounds, 3.5 assists, 1.5 steals, 4 blocks. Ewing, 19 points, 12 rebounds, 2 assists, 1 steal, 4 blocks. Pretty good. I mean, but Akeem was a little bit better. Ewing had a finals record 30 blocks. He tied the single game record of 8, which would later be broken by Duncan for total amount and Dwight Howard for the game. Um, but the Rockets are your NBA champions. Now, a lot of people, again, dismiss the Rockets championship this year because MJ wasn't playing. People say, hey, had Jordan won, excuse me, had Jordan played, the Bulls would have won. And so I, I kind of really thought about that a little bit. Um, and I, I do think if the Bulls had beaten the Knicks, they, they would have probably lost to, to the, the, the Rockets in the championship finals. But I asked myself, what if Jordan was on this team? And so, looking at the starting lineups here, let's go, let's go position by position. Number one uh, point guard, you have Kenny Smith and B.J. Armstrong. As I've mentioned before, B.J. Armstrong, really great underrated guard. This was kind of at his peak. He was just as good as Kenny Smith. I, I would say this is at least a push right now, if not advantage bowls, but we'll call it a push. Shooting guard, you have Jordan versus Vernon Maxwell. That's obviously an advantage for the Bulls. Small forward, you have Scottie Pippen versus Robert Ory. Robert Ory, great player, but Scottie Pippen's one of the greatest small forwards of all time. So that's advantage Bulls. Horace Grant versus Otis Thorpe. Power forward, Horace Grant was a better player, had a better season. Bulls had the advantage there. Center, uh, Akeem versus Cartwright. That's a huge advantage for the Rockets. So I think if you look at it, I think the Bulls have the advantage at three of those positions. Rockets won, another one's a push. If you look at their bench, uh, Kerr, Wennington, Kukoc versus Mario Ellie, Brooks, and Cassell, I think that's a push as well. And so really, if you're comparing these two teams, um, the big key is how would the Bulls have handled Akeem? Well, a lot of people say the Bulls never faced any good centers during their run, and that's why they would have lost the Rockets. But that's not really true because the Bulls beat Patrick Ewing three times in a row. They would later beat Shaq in the playoffs in 96. So I think it's likely they would have figured it out. And I just, and I hate to do this to dismiss the Rockets, but I really do think if the Bulls had Michael Jordan, I think they'd beat the Rockets. Houston had 58 wins. The Bulls had 55 wins. And that's without Jordan. I think if they have MJ, they'd probably hit 60. And so I do think Michael Jordan wins helps the Bulls win four in a row if he plays but he didn't he didn't play and so that doesn't take anything away from the Rockets championship though so anyways Rockets win in 94 they come back in 95 as one of the favorites to win they started 9-0 and again but then they really struggled they were pretty much a 500 team after that Ended up trading for Clyde Drexler. So, again, if you remember from my earlier podcast, Clyde is one of the greatest shooting guards of all time. Um, just not quite as good as Michael Jordan. Uh, and he was Akeem's old college teammate. And so, unfortunately, though, for the Rockets, 
they just really struggled with chemistry this year. And even after they traded for Clyde, they uh, were essentially a 500 team. And they went into the playoffs as a number six seed. So looking at their lineup again, you have Kenny Smith at point guard. Again, you have Clyde Drexler. Clyde had a great year. 21 points, 7 rebounds, 4 assists, and 2 steals. He was still a really productive player, despite the fact he's getting into his 30s. Um, he, Clyde forced a trade from Portland because Portland started to rebuild. And Clyde did not want to go through a rebuild, so he requested a trade. And that's how the Rockets got him. And I'll talk about the 95 playoffs in a minute. But Clyde would play all the 96, 97, and 98 as well. And would help the Rockets to three playoffs. Where they make the Western Conference Finals one time before he finally retired. But So Clyde is your shooting guard this year. You still have Robert Ory on the team. Uh, their power forward now is Pete Chilcutt. I actually have no clue if I pronounced that right. I should have looked into that. But sorry, Pete, if you're listening. He had five points and five rebounds. He was a free agent in the offseason. Um, he only started five more games in his career after this season. So it's just not as good as they Otis Thorpe the year before. And then Akeem. Dominant year. 28 points, 11 rebounds, 4 assists, 3 blocks, and 2 steals. He stood Mario Alley and Sam Cassell um, on the team as well. And so they go into the playoffs of the sixth seed, and they, they're really not at all considered a favorite to win the finals, let alone maybe to win a series. But they went on what some people call the greatest playoff run ever. And so round one, they played the Utah Jazz, who were a 60-win team. Uh, Utah would win game one, and then they split games two and three. So Utah is up two games to one. Houston comes back with a very easy win in game four. Clyde Drexler scores 41 points, and Akeem scores 40. Craziness. So then you go to a do-or-die game five, and Houston is actually down seven going into the fourth. And then, but they go on a 10 nothing run to take the lead. Uh, we're going through this. Kind of my notes. And then Malone would hit a bucket to make it a one-point game with 90 seconds left. And then pretty much from there, it becomes a free-throw shooting game. Uh, Utah would be up by, would be down by four, excuse me, with 14 seconds to go. And, um, but Utah really couldn't come back. Stockton would miss a three. Um, and I'm just sorry, man, I'm trying to read my notes. I apologize for this. Stockton would miss a three. And really, Houston would do a really good job of making their free throws. They ended up pulling out um, a four-point win to win the series. And actually, the last 10 points for Houston were free throws. And so part of part of the, the Rockets pulling it off there is that this shot free throws better. And so Akeem had 31, 33, Clyde had 31. And so the Rockets pull up the upset and beat the three-seed Jazz. And Akeem would say later after that first series that – he felt they could win a championship after they beat Utah because they felt he felt Utah was a legit team. So then they go to play the Phoenix Suns, and who were at a 59-win season, and Phoenix was number two. 
two seed. The first three games were blowouts. Phoenix won the first two. Uh, Houston won the third. And then Houston has a 10-point lead at halftime in game four. But then Phoenix comes all the way back and wins. And Kevin Johnson scores 43 points for the Suns. So Phoenix takes a three games to one lead going into game five. And AC Green guarantees victory, which is something you should never do. And because you never know what's going to happen. So game five is close throughout. Um, Barkley misses three free throws in the fourth quarter and the game goes to overtime. So that really cost the team the game. Um, Clyde Drexler actually was sick and kind of did a flu game type of a thing where he was having an IV earlier in the day. He comes back and plays. And uh, Houston would win in overtime, 103-97. Uh, Barkley actually had 20 rebounds and so did AC Green. So, Houston forces game six. Uh, Houston would then end up winning game six by 13 points to force a game seven. And then you look at game seven. Phoenix up by three, 13 after one, up by 10 and a half. So, Phoenix is in control of this game. But then Houston comes back. They take a lead going into the fourth quarter. And with 45 seconds to go, Houston is up by one point. Kevin Johnson would get fouled but split his free throws to tie the game with 21 seconds left. It's 110 to 110. And then Mario Ellie hits for the Rockets what's called the kiss of death. I love that name of it. So Mario Ellie hits a three with seven seconds to go to put the Rockets up three. Then he turns to the crowd and blows a kiss to the crowd. Um, puts him up by three. Phoenix gets the ball back. Uh, Houston purposely fouls Phoenix to put him on the line so they can only, you know, get to within two or get to within one. Uh, so they end up making both those free throws. Phoenix fouls Houston and makes their free throws. Houston again fouls Phoenix so they can't take a three. Um, and Houston ends up winning 115 to 114. Um, and they end up winning the series, coming all the way back from a three games to one deficit to go to the Western Conference Finals. And here they play the San Antonio Spurs. David Robinson was the MVP of the season. Uh, the Rockets, all, the Spurs also had Dennis Rodman here. 62 win team. Um, Houston would win game one by one point. Houston would win by 10 in game two. Game three was a comeback by San Antonio. They were down by nine and a half, but they won. And then San Antonio would blow out Houston in game four. So the team split their first four games. It's two games to two. Houston comes back in game five and just destroys the Spurs by 21. And Dennis Rodman is really angry about this. And he really blamed their coach, Brian Hill, um, of, the, of the strategy of double teaming Hakeem with Robinson and him. He said that was terrible, and Rodman was really angry because he said he really felt like the Spurs should have won this game, and he blamed the coach. Uh, game six was pretty close throughout. Houston was up by one after three, and then with six minutes to go, Houston took a nine-point lead, but then Doc Rivers, who had played for the Knicks, now he's on uh, 
Now he's on the Spurs this year. Would bring uh, the Spurs back. And he would score seven straight points to tie the game at 92 with three seconds to go. Then uh, Robinson would end up splitting some free throws to put the Spurs up by one with two and a half to go. Drexler would hit two free throws to put the uh, Spurs uh, Rockets up one. Robinson would miss a shot, and then Ori would hit kind of a a dagger three, we'll call it, that put um, the the Rockets up by four with two to go, so it's a 6-3, and pretty much after that, Spurs couldn't do anything. The the Rockets would hit their free throws, and they would win 100-95, and so they'd win this series in six and go to the NBA Finals for the second in a row. Now, I think this is a really interesting what-if in NBA history. I really wonder what if San Antonio would have won because I think San Antonio was just as good of a team um, and they had some really close games. I really wonder what would have happened if San Antonio would have beaten the Rockets. I, if, he, if they, if they would have gone to the finals, he would have had David Robinson versus Shaq because the, they, they played the Magic. The question would be, what if Orlando wins in that instance? Does Shaq stay in Orlando? But the bigger what if is, what if San Antonio would have won this series and then won the NBA Finals? Does Dennis Rodman stay in San Antonio instead of get traded to the Bulls in the offseason? And what happens to that Bulls repeat or three-peat? Does, Dennis, does San Antonio stay good enough to the point where they don't end up collapsing and end up getting Tim Duncan at the number one pick in a few years. If the Spurs win, then Clyde Drexler doesn't get a ring. In this case, Hakeem only gets one ring. And also, Greg Popovich ended up coming down and becoming the coach for the Spurs at, um, in a couple of years after they get Tim Duncan. So that's my question. Does What if the Spurs would have won this? And I think that's a very interesting what if. But they didn't. And the Rockets continue their magical run as they hit the NBA Finals and play the Orlando Magic, led by Shaquille O'Neal, who averaged 29 points, 11 rebounds, and Penny Hardaway, who averaged 21 points, 4.5 rebounds, 7 assists. Actually, really, this was a really fun team to watch, the Magic. And I actually love Shaq when he's on the Magic. I actually started rooting against him when he went to L.A. But he was a real cultural phenomenon. Um, coming out of college, and he was super fun. Uh, he made a movie called Kazam, but he's a genie. It's actually a really terrible movie, but you know, whatever. I actually almost bought his first shoes. I remember going to a shoe store before school year started, and my parents could get me some shoes, and I liked the Shaq shoes that were there, and I wanted them. They didn't have them in my size, so I, did, I didn't get them. Uh, but Lando was a really fun team with, with, with Shaq and Penny, and people were thinking that was the team that was going to dominate the East. Um, Orlando was the second quickest expansion team to make the finals. The Milwaukee Bucks had done it in 71 when they got Kareem. But they were the clear favorites to win this series, and honestly, probably should have. So game one is the most famous game of this series. Orlando was up by three points. They have the ball. Uh, Penny Hardaway misses a shot, but they get the rebound. Orlando misses another shot. 
but they get another offensive rebound, and Houston ends up fouling the Magic, Nick Anderson, with 10 seconds to go. Nick Anderson would end up getting four free throws. He would miss two, then he'd get the offensive rebound and get fouled again, and that's what, and so he'd get two more. So he had four free throws. If he hits one of those four free throws, the Magic win the game. He misses all four free throws. Kenny Smith for the Rockets comes down, hits the three with one second to go to tie the game. Sends it to overtime. Orlando would almost return the favor. They'd hit a three to tie the game with five seconds to go, but then Akeem Olajuwon would tip in a Clyde Drexler miss with three-tenths of a second left, and they would steal game one. 120 to 118. And I think this is a huge game because Orlando should have won this game. If they make one of those free throws, they win that game and they take control of the series. But instead, Houston steals one in Orlando and they take the momentum going into game two. Uh, Houston pretty much controls game two. They're winning by 22 after two, 19 after three. Orlando would cut to nine, but Houston would just control the whole game. And Orlando would become the only the second team after the Phoenix Suns to lose the first two games of the NBA Finals at home. Uh, game three was close throughout. Okay, so the Orlando really needs game three. They, they can't go down 0-3. Um, with 2.30 to go, Houston's up by two. Each side misses a shot. Uh, Drexler would come down, hit a bucket, then would get called for a technical foul and a delay a game. Um, so it'd be 98-95. Shaq would miss a shot. Um, Houston makes a... Th- let's see. I don't, I don't need to spare the play-by-play here, but eventually it would be 101-100. to The Rockets would be up after Horace Grant hits a two. Again, Horace Grant was on the Magic this year. He signed a free agent contract with them. Big shot Rob. Robert Ory would hit a three to put the Rockets up by four with 14 seconds to go. Uh, Orlando would miss a three. Houston would get the ball with six seconds left. Drexler would split the free throws. So Houston's up by five. Nick Anderson would hit a three with two seconds to go. Sam Cassell would split the free throws. So Orlando would have a chance to do what Houston did in game one. So Orlando would get the ball back. With a couple seconds left, down by three, with a chance to send the game into overtime, like the Rockets did in game one, Penny Hardaway ends up missing the three. And so the Rockets end up winning game three and take just a commanding three games to nothing lead. So again, you look at this series so far, Houston's up three games to nothing. Orlando could have very easily won games one and three. Go to game four, um, close game. Orlando's up by one with ten and a half minutes to go, and then Orlando, Houston would just take over. They would go on a huge run, and they'd actually end up winning by 12 points. So they end up sweeping the Magic. Hakeem was back-to-back Finals MVP, 33 points, 11 rebounds, five and a half assists, two steals, and two blocks. Clyde would have a great series, 21.5 points, 10 rebounds, 7 assists. Shaq, 28 points, 13 rebounds, 2 block, two and a half blocks. Penny, 25.5 points, 5 rebounds, 8 assists. Um, but three, again, two really close games, games one and, and three. 
And game four was kind of close until the fourth. Uh, I think really the difference in this series was you had a very young team in Orlando, talented but young, that weren't experienced. And they faced a team in Houston that had that playoff experience. And so they knew how to win close games. And I really think that championship experience willed them to those victories. I think if Houston had been a team that hadn't had that success, I don't know if they would have pulled out all those games. But Houston ends up uh, becoming the first team to win, to beat four 50-win teams in a single postseason. They won a record nine road games in the playoffs. They were the lowest seed and still are the lowest seed ever to win an NBA title at six. And and really underrated run. They beat a prime um, Carl Malone and John Stockton. They beat a prime Charles Barkley. They beat a prime David Robinson, Shaq and Penny. What I'm saying is they it might have been the most impressive run ever because they had to beat four really good teams. Each had all-time great players on their teams in their prime. So what a phenomenal run. The 94 team is probably better than the 95 Rockets team, but I think the 95 playoff run is a lot more impressive. So back-to-back championships with Rockets. The question is, would the Bulls and MJ have beaten them? So um, so Jordan famously came back at the end of this, in the middle of this year, end of this year, and he did play for the Bulls in the playoffs where they would lose to the Magic, which we'll talk more in depth next episode. But let's say Jordan never retired, and let's say the Bulls played this Rockets team with Michael Jordan. Let's say the Bulls made the finals. So again, let, let's let's kind of compare rosters here. Point guard, you have Armstrong versus Kenny Smith. Again, that's a push. Shooting guard is Jordan versus Clyde this year. You still give the edge to Jordan, but it's not as big of an edge the year before when the Rockets didn't have Clyde Drexler. Small forward, you have Scotty. Pippen versus Robert Ory. I'd give the edge of the Bulls again because of Scotty. Power forward. This is where the Bulls really hurt. They don't have Horace Grant this year. You have Tony Kukoc. Him versus Chilcutt. I would say that's a push. And then again, you have a huge edge to the uh, the Rockets with the center with Akeem. Facing off against Will Purdue and Luke Longley. I think looking at that, I think the Rockets are better. I do. Um, missing out on Horace Grant really hurts for the Bulls this year. And the Rockets having Clyde Drexler really helps him out. So I think if, if these teams played, I, I think the Rockets beat the 95 Bulls. I do. Um, so I, I kind of long story short, I, I do think that the 94 Rockets would lose to a, a, a Jordan Bulls team in 94, but they'd beat a Jordan Bulls team in 95. But I really think this Rockets team is underrated. They point to the fact that Michael Jordan was retired, and that's the only reason they won. Uh, that's not fair to them. They won the two titles. Back-to-back is not easy, and they had to earn it. They had to really earn it, especially in their second playoff run. Great team. They had a Hall of Fame, one of the all-time great centers. Hall of Fame shooting guard in Clyde Drexler, 95. Had some great moments. The Houston Papers called them Choke City. And they ended up being Clutch City. So, Houston Rockets, back-to-back championships. One of the all-time um, great teams of all time that went back-to-back in 94 and 95. 
All right, as we get towards the end of the, of the podcast, there's just two more things I want to talk about. And one of them is our player profile, and that is Bill Winnington. And so, again, each, each, uh, each episode here, I want to profile one person or more that were on the 98 Bulls. And so, Bill Winnington, I really kind of struggle to find a lot of great information on him. So, this will be kind of brief. But Bill Winnington was mostly a backup center for the Bulls from 94 to 99. He played 367 games with only 51 starts. So kind of a, a true backup for center for the Bulls. Behind Bill Cartwright in 94, but also Luke Longley. Now he's from Canada. He played at St. John's in New York and played in one Final Four. He was the 16th pick in the 85 draft by the Mavericks. Played from 85 to 90. Again, pretty much a backup. Averaged four points, three rebounds. Traded to Sacramento and played there for one season. And then he played in Italy uh, from 91 to 93 in the same league that Tony Kukoc played. So, um, And then he signed a free agent contract with Chicago. So it's kind of interesting that Tony and, and, and Bill both came over from Italy to the Bulls in 94. He's kind of a popular backup guy. They, they had a sandwich at McDonald's called the Beef Winnington that they named after him. He did play for the 84 Olympics with Team Canada. They got fourth place, and he was inducted into the Canadian Basketball Hall of Fame. There was one Bulls writer that called him the best Bulls reserve in franchise history, so he was a really valuable player for the Bulls in his career. Career numbers, four and a half points, three rebounds, total of 17 win shares. So just kind of a true backup player. He was interviewed a lot in the last dance, had a pretty awesome mustache in it. But I really, really searched to try to find some interesting stories about him. Really couldn't find that. So, um, Bill, if you're listening, call me so I can get you on the podcast. But, uh, we'll, uh, so yeah, this is Bill Weddington, backup center. Nice little role player on, on the Bulls' second three-peat. All right, so the last thing I want to talk about now is uh, in this episode, they, they do spend some time talking about the 98 team. Uh, and they're in the first round of the playoffs, finally. So they're the number one seed in the East. They are playing the New Jersey Nets, not the Brooklyn Nets, the New Jersey Nets. Um, and the Bulls had gone 4-0 and on them in the regular season. So first round, best of five. Uh, so let's just talk about that series here as we close the podcast. The Nets are 43-39, and coached by John Calipari. He was famous at this time for taking UMass to the Final Four with Marcus Camby, which was a, a big deal. UMass was pretty much nothing before he got there. Um, since that Final Four has been vacated, I think it's because Camby took money from an agent. Uh, after the Nets, Calipari became famous for coaching Memphis and Derrick Rose to the Final or Championship game, where that's was vacated as well, actually, because of Derrick Rose's, I think, ACT score. He shouldn't have gotten into college. I think that's it. And then he'd go and move on to Kentucky. He's at Kentucky, actually, right now. He's won a national championship with them. But right now, he was trying to become an NBA coach. And what he's really famous for is that he was actually really high on Kobe Bryant in the 1996 draft. And they had the eighth pick. And he really wanted to draft him. Kobe and his agent didn't want to go to New Jersey. They wanted to go to the Lakers. And so they pretty much had told New Jersey, if you don't draft us, 
we're not going to play for you. We'll go to Europe or something like that. <clears throat> and in hindsight, I think Kobe, I think either Kobe or Kobe's agents or representatives have said later on that he would have played for New Jersey. He wasn't going to go to Europe and play. Um, so it was just a bluff. But uh, John Calipari, and I think definitely the owner, got didn't like the fact of potentially drafting a guy, especially a high school kid, and then him not playing and going overseas. And so whether it was Calipari's decision or the owner's decision, they ended up not drafting Kobe Bryant and drafted Kerry Kittles instead, who is an okay player, but obviously not Kobe Bryant. So just kind of imagine what would have happened if, if Kobe would have gone to the Nets. It's very possible that John Calipari would have stayed in the NBA coaching for a while because that Kobe Bryant was that good. And the Lakers wouldn't have been that dynasty with Shaq and Kobe later on. But um, anyway, so looking at their starting lineup, their point guard is Sam Cassell. Again, he was just on those Houston Rockets championship teams um, as a reserve. He averaged 20 points and 8 assists that year. He did have a 15-year career. He was traded for a lot of famous people. So um, how he got to uh, um, New Jersey was that Houston traded him to Phoenix in, a, in the, a deal to get Charles Barkley. So Charles Barkley ended up playing on Houston with Drexler and Elijah on for a while, and they couldn't win. Then he was traded from Phoenix um, to Dallas for Jason Kidd. So two big-time trades that he was part of for big-time players, and then he was eventually traded from Dallas to New Jersey Really strong point guard, but also um, eventually become a pretty good player for the Minnesota Timberwolves later on in the early 2000s. So he's your point guard. Um, Kerry Kittles, as I mentioned, was a guard. 17 points per game, 5 rebounds, 2 assists, 2 steals. Um, he had an 8-year career, so you know, a solid career, but he's not Kobe. Another guard slash forward was Kendall Gill. Played 15 years, 13 points, 5 rebounds, 3 assists, 2 steals. Kind of a guy who could do about everything. He's famous for being on the 1989 Illinois Flying Illini basketball team that went to the Final Four. Uh, the forward uh, is Keith Van Horn. He was a rookie, and he was the number two pick behind Tim Duncan. He had led Utah to the national championship game, which was crazy. I remember that happened. They lost to Kentucky. Uh... He averaged 20 points and six and a half rebounds, two assists that year. Played for nine years. Uh, and then their center was Jason Williams. He was an all-star this year. Um, his best season, 13 points, 14 rebounds. Um, he later was actually convicted of manslaughter with his limo driver. Um, I think he claimed it was accidental. But uh, he ended up getting convicted of that. So a lot of like decent players in their starting lineup. That's why they're 43 and 39, but no real true stars. Bench players are Chris Gatling, Sherman Douglas. So everybody expected the Bulls to win this series easily. Jordan famously said they'd have to fall asleep to lose this game. Uh, the Nets are also banged up. Cassell is actually hurt. Uh, the Nets, though, came right at it in game one, took a 12-3 lead, and the Bulls would would end up eventually retaking the lead going into the second quarter. Bulls would get up by seven in the second quarter, and they'd actually stretch their lead all, up to as much as 12, um, and then actually 14 in the fourth. The Bulls then went four minutes without a point, and the Nets went on a 16-2 run to tie the game with four minutes to go. The Nets took a one-point lead with a minute to go, Jordan ended up getting fouled. He only split the free throws, so the game was tied with 40 seconds to go. 
Kerry Kittles missed a shot to win the game, so it goes to overtime. Bulls outscored the Nets 7-4 in overtime. Jordan has 5, Pippen 2. Nets missed a desperation shot as time expired, and the Bulls survived. One by three points. Jordan 39-7, and seven, Pippen 24-7, and Kukoc and Harper at 13. Chris Gatling, a role player, at 24 points. Gill 14, Keith Van Horn 10. So, uh, Jordan said they were going to have to fall asleep to lose, and he, maybe they were napping going into that because they barely survive. Uh, going into game two, uh, Bulls got up 16 points at half, and then the Bulls would stretch that all the way up to uh, 19 points. Uh, but then the Nets would slowly chip away. Bulls were up by 14 in the fourth, and then they led by nine with one minute to go. Then some interesting things happened. Bulls really struggled with some free throws. Um, Kuko split some. Jordan split some twice. And then all of a sudden, it was 94-91 with 15 seconds to go. The Bulls were able to hang on the win by five. Jordan had 32, Pippen 17, Kukoc 19, Kittles 23, Douglas 20. And what's really interesting to me as I've gone through the their first three-peat playoffs, actually even the 94 playoffs too for the Bulls, and I'm starting to go through the 98 playoffs, Bulls blew a lot of fourth-quarter leads during this dynasty run. And, and some of them, they, they would maybe go to overtime and, and then win. Or they'd hang on and win, but they blew a lot of leads, especially I think even that Phoenix series as well. So Bulls really weren't that invincible. It wasn't a guarantee if they had like a, a 10 point lead or double digit lead in the fourth quarter that they would hang on and win. So um, they blew their fair share of leads. So Bulls up 2 nothing. They go into game three in New Jersey. Uh, Bulls are up by seven after one and nine at the half. Scott Burrell, much maligned and made fun of by Michael Jordan in his documentary, had a big game, scored 11 points in the third. That stretched the Bulls' lead to 17, and they'd actually win game three pretty comfortably by 15. Jordan, 38 points. Rodman, 17 rebounds. Scott Burrell, 33 points. Van Horn, 18. Kittle, 16. Gill, 17. Douglas, 19. Now, despite the fact that Jordan kind of really, in this documentary, looks like he really... um. Uh, ragged and, and, and got on Scott Burrell a lot. Uh, Jordan and Scott are actually really close off the court. You know, they play cards and hang out together. And so, um, they, and Scott today says they have a great relationship and he has no problem with how Michael treated him when they played. So anyways, the Bulls um, sweep the Nets. They would go on and play the Charlotte Hornets in the next round, who were the four seed and they just beat the Atlanta Hawks and four games. So, Bulls survive. I don't know what survive is the right word, but they, they do sweep the Nets, but again, isn't completely easy. And with that, that is everything that The Last Dance Episode 7 talked about. So, we, we looked at Jordan's retirement and how the Bulls functioned without him. We took a look at the Houston Rockets championship years. Again, even though Jordan was gone, you got to respect him. Looked at Bell Wennington a little bit and then that first round series against the Nets. And so next episode will be Last Dance Episode 8. We're going to look at how the Bulls get back on top 
and start their second three-peat, and then how the Bulls do against the Charlotte Hornets um, in um, in the second round of the playoffs. So I uh, really appreciate you uh, uh, listening to this podcast. Um, again, I, I do have a, a Twitter handle of at Doc Tell Me More, where I just like to tweet out different stats, different fun facts, um, mostly sports and baseball and basketball right now. I um, would really appreciate it if you give it a follow. I had one follower, then I had two, and now I'm back to one follower. So that one follower that dropped me must have thought I was pretty boring. So I'd appreciate it if you followed me. Um, but if not, that's fine too. I do appreciate you listening to this podcast. Uh, episode 7 for The Last Dance, an episode I can't even remember already. Is it 24? Of um, Doc Tell Me More. And so I will catch you later for the next episode of Doc Tell Me More. It will be Last Dance Season 8. Have a great day.